listening to the Leadership Woman podcast with me, Jill Savile. And today my guest is Ruth Chiat. She is Head of Behaviour Change for Sustrans in London. And you're going to hear all about what Sustrans is. And we're going to listen to Ruth to discover a bit more about her and what led her into this role. So welcome, Ruth. Hi, thank you. Do you want to start by just telling us what Sustrans is? Yeah, so Sustrans is a charity. It's a national charity all about helping people and empowering people to choose healthier, happier journeys. And we do a whole range of, you know, design and delivery of environmental and infrastructure projects to working with communities to help design those projects. And um, what my team is about, which is empowering people to actually um, make changes to how they move around on a more individual level. So it's not just about having more bicycles that you can hire in London. You're about actually helping people make that lifestyle change. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So, um, you know, infrastructure change and, you know, the facilities that are provided for communities are a really big part of it. Um, And actually having more bikes available is the kind of thing that can help people to make changes in their everyday lives. Um, Another thing is, you know, just do they have the confidence or have they ever considered that it might be something for them? Um, So there's a whole range from just that very starting point of, could I cycle, um, to having all the things that you need um, to feel the skills and confidence and the facilities that you need and the equipment that you need, and then the environment that you need around you for it to feel conducive as well. So it's the whole range. Yeah, I, I would definitely take some persuading to, uh, to, get, to get on a bike. <laughs> my my first it. thought would be, can, <laughs> can I even ride a bike? Uh, so what, whereabouts were you born? Because you're in London now. Yeah, I was actually born in London, um, in Waltham Forest. Um, but I, I didn't grow up in London. I grew up in Sheffield. What was growing up in Sheffield like then? Yeah, I mean, Sheffield's a nice place. It's a lovely green place. It's a nice, friendly city. And what was school like? School. Yeah, I mean, I went to high store school. I think it's a good school. I always found school a bit of a struggle, to be honest. Um, I was quite shy as a child. Um, I was very shy, actually, at some points. Actually, as a teenager, I was really, really quiet a bit of a daydreamer and found it quite hard to sort of engage with things in a way although although I did and I did I did do all right at school um but a bit of a dreamer a bit of a dreamer yeah (laughs) and a bit like I found it really hard to connect with other people when I was at school Uh, I guess partly for yeah for that reason as well just being a bit feeling a bit separate I had friends that I was <laughs> I don't know if this is like the kind of thing that's useful to talk about on this um I did have friends at school but I just 
didn't really talk to them. <laughs> I was just a quiet member of the group. I understand what you mean. It was fine and my education was fine. I, I just have this sense of being a bit removed from it all really and finding it quite hard to engage with it and feel motivated and positive about those kind of things, I guess. And that's really interesting because being separate and quiet and not really engaged. What happened when you left school? Um, well, I went to university and sort of had a similar experience in a way at university than I had had at school. That it was like an opening up in some ways. Um, but I think that really came a bit later on. I did all right at university. I, I kind of did the same as at school. I kind of did what I had to do. And I came out of it thinking, right, what am I going to do now? You know, what's, what's, where am I going? I'd done some bio work when I was a student anyway, so I kind of continued quite directionless, really, until I, I guess you could call it dropping out. But what I discovered was... Um, a kind of purpose and meaning which wasn't about getting a job it was more about changing the world wow. <laughs> so you know I, I kind of discovered um, the environmental movement and anti-capitalist movement that was growing at the time and got involved in things like protesting and setting up squat cafes uh, which was a kind of really community focused, um, but on the activist side, that, that was like a really sort of period of growth, I suppose, for me, that I discovered that I did have passions and I did have things that I cared about and I could have an impact that was important to me. The work at Sustrans was a progression of that. I still feel really strongly about all those things but in a different way. Um, I don't feel as strongly that I'm an anti-capitalist as I did at that point. Um, I think there's lots of different ways of potentially managing our societies. But what I do really care about is, is people, the fact that people can make change in their own lives. You know, if lots of people make little bits of change, that can actually make a big change overall. Um, but making slow change and, and bringing people along, you know. It sounds like a period of maturity. You went from dropping out, although you said, no, it, it wasn't dropping out. And then you were working in a cafe, squat cafes and activism and wanted to change the world, which we all start off. I can remember doing fast for Oxfam when I was 18. Mm. You know, you, you want to change yeah. the world. And now you've moved into actually small, consistent steps, slow change, bringing everybody with you. Yeah, exactly. I think I just realised at some point after dropping out or dropping in, maybe it's a better term, because I was involved in a lot of things and doing, you know, some really things that I did feel were really worthwhile. Um, and I think the kind of social spaces that I was involved in were also like really formative for me in terms of seeing something that was really impactful. 
Um, but I definitely hit a point where I was like, I want to, I don't want to do this outside of society anymore. I want to do this inside society. You know, I don't want to be pushing from the outside and telling everyone that they're wrong anymore. I want to be a part of it and be doing it with everybody. Yeah, that's an interesting reflection because you are part of it. You're human like the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. we're all part of it, yeah. Yeah, and I, I love the fact you were talking about dropping. It wasn't a fact that you were dropping out. You were, you were dropping in. Mm. And this isn't something that we've talked about. I, I was wondering whether you'd been part of Extinction Rebellion at all. Actually, not directly. So, yeah, that was... I guess, like a later incarnation of the kind of things that I was involved in. Mm. Yes. Because I'm older than I look. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, one of my previous guests was from uh, Extinction Rebellion. So I was... Right, right. I mean, it's, yeah, definitely in that sort of vein. A lot of the things they're doing are really fantastic. You know, they obviously had a huge impact when they they first started, which was amazing. Um, And I think... From what I understand, they they have moved into kind of more community outreach kind of things, and I think that's really valuable. Um, I think the I think the messaging around the climate now is much more generally understood and accepted, which is great. And I think Extinction Rebellion have played a big part in that. Yeah, um, I think they've definitely changed minds. So, was there anything between the um... You said that actually you're older than you look. So something between the squat cafes and where you were to now, where did you move into? Yeah, I got into the cycling. That's the link because it was something that I felt was the right thing for me to do. And I'd done a bit of cycling when I was a student and found it really, you know, really empowering just having that freedom and independence to get around on your own terms. I started working as a cycling instructor. So there are people like you that could teach me how to ride a bike. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a big industry. We do a lot of work with people who've never ridden bikes before um, and run clubs where people can you know, join week after week to build confidence and starts to become something that's more familiar for the community you can borrow a bike for a day and you can do the training and join the group rides and you know build up slowly and that sounds brilliant because when I think about cycling and I I think well I don't want to go to this extreme I don't want to wear one of those hats that make you look like an alien and uh, and the baboon pants and the lycra I think yeah. well that's just not me um, but to be able to go to a club of people like me who have you know, no balance and uh, and are timid, then yeah, this sounds great. And yeah. it's not just in London. You're at the London place, but yeah. it's in so, areas around the country, is it? Yeah, we do do work around the country, yeah. Um, and I think what you just said highlights, you know, basically the crux of, of the matter really is that people associate cycling with middle-aged men in lycra. Um, <laughs> the Tour de France. <laughs> yeah. 
and um, and that's just you know it's outdated really but it's kind of it's it's how do we change that perception and I yes. think we change it by there's lots of different ways we can change that perception um, and one of, a really important way is that we empower people to see it as being for them and to try it and have that different experience yeah, because when I see films, when I see old films and I see women, you know, in the skirts and dresses or whatever, just hopping on a bike with a basket in front. And I think, yeah, mm. I could go along with that. Yeah, I mean, I, could go along with yeah, that I think having, having a really comfortable bike is a big part of it, you know, having yes. a bike that feels comfortable. And, you know, you mentioned wearing a helmet. I mean, obviously, it's, it's personal choice whether you wear a helmet and I don't wear a helmet. Um I do get my kids to wear helmets. <laughs> Probably yeah. a bit hypocritical, but yes, yeah. We we all are, I think, with our kids. So, um, and the other thing you've said about comfort on a bicycle. Sorry to labour this point, but, but whenever I've um, I did learn to ride a bicycle when I turned forty, and I thought, Jill, it's about time you learn to ride a bike. And so uh, we went to Centre Parks. <laughs> we hired a bike. I wheeled it all the way to the shallow because I couldn't ride it. And then when it got dark, I asked my daughter to teach me how to ride uh, in our little cul-de-sac. So that, that's how I first started. But every time I've tried since, the saddles are so uncomfortable. And I was saying this to somebody the other day, and I said, can you buy a better saddle? Yes, you can. But really, you're better buying these I call them baboon pants. What? Oh, like you mean shorts with pads in? Y yes, yes. Uh, you're better off buying those. They really make a big difference. And I thought, okay, maybe. But I certainly wouldn't wear them on the. On the I, I wear them up. <laughs> I mean, personally, I would go with a better saddle because you know. I don't tend to change my clothes to cycle because I just cycle to get around. So yes, um, my personal choice would be to have a saddle that felt comfortable in whatever I was wearing. Yes. Um, so you can just hop on your bike, pop to the shop or, you know, I cycle to work. Um, what, whatever local journeys you want to do, it's more flexible than a thing of like, right, cycling time, get the cycling shorts on. Um, but it's it is obviously all about personal choice you know everyone's you know got different ways that suit them and I think you know a lot of our work is about understanding people's unique needs and unique barriers um, and and working to those um, and, and one thing you mentioned was doing it in the dark I was interested to understand that more because I know you know some communities that we work with in London, you know, there's cultural, a lot of cultural barriers where women particularly, you know, don't feel like they should be cycling. It's not socially acceptable for them to cycle and, and or they, you know, they feel, um, I don't know if ashamed is the right word, but, you know, they, they feel shy about cycling in public. Um, so we'll run sessions in places that feel quite private um that kind of thing um yeah. making the times that suit the people you know if it's mother you know mothers that we're working with 
you know, often we can do it in, in school times while the children are in school. Um, and it's quiet in a lot of, you know, the local area at the same time. So there's, there's a lot of different considerations and what it does really come down to is listening to what people's sort of specific needs are and, and tailoring what we do to, to meet those needs. Yes. I, I can hear that you're discovering the barriers. I'm telling you my barriers and doing it in the dark was purely because I didn't want the embarrassment of being laughed at when I fell off, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing. If you, if you haven't learned to ride a bike as a child, it is harder and you feel maybe embarrassed that you don't know how to do it yet. Exactly. Or what's it going to look like? You don't know what it's going to feel like or what it's going to look like. You feel quite sort of daunted by it all. Yes. So uh, creating the right environment for people to try it is really, really important. And you've really helped me because at that time when I learned and I did buy a bicycle and I did live near a trail, Tevisal Trail, and funnily enough, the house that I'm buying in August is again near Tevisal Trail. And it's already crossed my mind, Jill, maybe it's time to have a bike. Yes, it's many years later, but um, why not? And you are, the things that you're saying are making this possible. Mm. It's making this seem less daunting. I don't need all this fancy I don't need the fancy clothes. Um, I can do it every day like they used to do in the old days, dare I say, in the old days. Um, and this is more like, yeah, it, you're, it's more attractive to me now, Ruth. So you might have okay. a convert here. Good, As, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so next, <laughs> you started off, you were a cycling instructor. So fill in a little bit more of the gaps between there and um, moving to this head of behaviour change. Yeah, so I, from being a cycling instructor, I, you know, I, I got a, a job at Sustrans to be a bike officer, which was um, an exciting project that, you know, in schools to excite sort of children around active travel, um, cycling mainly, um, and to, to create behaviour change around the school journey. Mm -hmm. I found that a really rewarding project to work on and you know while I've been at Sustrans I've worked in lots of other areas as well and worked in collaborative design which is about including communities in how we redesign or reimagine the environment around us. Mm -hmm. The people that use the space have the best understanding of what's needed in that space and how they can get the most out of that space. Hmm. Um, and also if people are involved in reimagining a space they feel a part of that change rather than feeling like something's being imposed on them I came back to behaviour change um, after having my second child and return to leave hmm. so you've very definitely gone from being outside and sort of shouting you're all doing it wrong to, to being on the inside and how could we make this work? Let's see if we can do this together. Yeah. Hmm. 
And so I did ask you to think of three things that you'd learned over the years that you thought would be helpful for people to take away. So what would the first thing be? My first takeaway is just that being active and spending outdoor, uh, time outdoors is just really amazing for my well-being, your well-being, um, health and mental health. Through the lockdown, I also discovered running. Uh, I'd never thought of myself as a runner, but and, and now I run quite often. I am a person that runs. In the lockdown, when we were just getting our hour of exercise, I was doing the couch to 5K, um, which is really kind of simple steps to building up to like doing longer runs. There's an app, isn't there? I it's think my friends yeah, tried to introduce me to that. It's an NHS app. So spending time outdoors then is amazing for your well-being, health, mental health. Yeah. That's your first takeaway. Brilliant. Yeah. And what's yeah. your second? Uh, my second takeaway is around listening to people and understanding people. And that that's key to empowering people. Understanding what people need in order to support them and empower them to try different things and to do things differently. And remove the um, obstacles was a big thing that you've been doing with me. Yes. Barriers and even, even myself, you know, when I was, um, after my first and my second children were born and I had different situations, I couldn't figure out how to get back on a bike for a while because it needed I needed different equipment and I, I didn't feel as confident. Yeah. And... So I've got, you know, just first-hand experience of how, even as someone who's a convert in a quite a supportive environment, working in a sustainable transport charity, you can hit barriers. So, so the work that we do is, is really, really about understanding what those barriers are um, and yeah. meeting people where they are. Yeah. I was just thinking about having my children. And if you'd have told me I had to ride a bike as well. Been, <laughs> that, it can actually be really empowering to ride <laughs> with a child because, you know, when you've got a child and you've got a buggy and, you, you know, why I suddenly went from being free to go wherever I wanted on my bike to being like, right, I've got this buggy and I've got to get a bus somewhere and I've got to get a bus from there to there and wait for another bus and because there isn't a direct bus and yes. you're on a bike you just go your direct route or you choose your route you know yeah um, yeah I can imagine I did make sure that all three children could ride bikes and could swim because they were things that, that I didn't do and what's the third thing yeah so the third thing kind of ties those things together and it's about our beliefs um, about ourselves and also the beliefs that we collectively hold about ourselves as a society or within a community and just that those beliefs can shift. Um, yes, I mean we could talk for hours about beliefs and changing beliefs and uh, when I'm thinking about when I listen to my father talk and he will comment that the bus driver was a woman. Um, <laughs> and to me, it wouldn't have needed comment, but for him, that quite challenged 
a, a belief, a long-held belief. And yeah. as you're talking about, yes, Muslim women becoming bicycle instructors, your belief, new belief that you are a runner. Um, we heard somebody in Luxembourg, a, a young woman who had just swum the English Channel. She still didn't see herself as a swimmer. I mean, I find that mm. quite, uh, yeah. quite surprising. So beliefs about ourselves and that we collectively hold about our community and our society can shift, can change. Yeah. Powerful takeaways. Thank you very much Thank for you. coming on the Leadership Woman podcast. And I may well go and buy a bike. <laughs> do, yeah. And if you want to chat about bikes at any point, do get in touch. I'd be happy to talk about it more. I will. That's brilliant. Thank you very much.